Welcome to Oilfield Talk. My name is Trey Falk, and I'm host of Oilfield Talk podcast. We want to speak with workers from all other aspects of the oil and gas industry and allow them the outlet to tell some crazy, amazing stories you just wouldn't believe are true. Not just the wildcats, the drillers, the roughnecks, the roustabouts, but the land-based offshore drilling operations, service companies, vendors, third-party personnel, production, transportation, all aspects that provide expertise throughout the oil field industry. But each of these have many, many hilarious stories to share about their time in the oil patch. I have no doubt that we will be able to share entertaining stories or tell tall tales that anyone who works in the industry will appreciate and get a hearty laugh while listening. But this is also going to be a family podcast. We'll be able to invite our families at home to listen. Although they won't believe half the stories we share, they may have a couple of dozen questions. Maybe it will give them and everyone a greater appreciation of the jobs we have in the oil field and why we enjoy our oil field family for half a year. So please take an hour or so out of your day. Give a listen to the Oil Field Talk podcast. Hope you enjoy the stories as much as I enjoy bringing them to you. You are about to meet the most interesting man Oilfield Talk has spoken to thus far. Mr. Kerry Crutcher, with over 68 years in the oil industry, he indeed has those stories you just wouldn't believe are true. But they are. We'll be able to listen to Mr. Crutcher in his own words tell stories from the 50s when the Texas oil boom was in full swing. His father had started a pipeline service business that he grew up in and later took over. And the stories he has to tell are just amazing. You might remember Dan Morrison from a previous episode. He and Mr. Crutcher are good friends, have worked together for years. Dan introduced us to Mr. Crutcher. Dan was there during the interview, lends his insights, these are the stories Oilfield Talk wants to capture. The oldest generation first to capture that before it's lost. I want to thank Mr. Crutcher and his family for allowing us to record. And when it was all over, Mr. Crutcher said, that was a lot of fun. Can't wait to do it again. I'll do my best to record more of Mr. Crutcher's stories, and I'm sure we'll all be looking forward to those. So sit back and relax. Enjoy this Christmas special. From Oil Field Talk. And this is Oil Field Talk. I'm in Sealy, Texas, which is just west of Houston. And I'm sitting down with Mr. Crutcher, who is 80 years old. 88. 88 years old. Oh, I'm so sorry. Said he got into the oil field at 14 years old. If anybody does the math, that's a long time. Mr. Crutcher's agreed to just tell us some stories, tell us some history. I told him anything he wants to talk about, I'll record. Mr. Crutcher. Thank you. I started to work for my father at Crutcher, Ross, and Cummings in 1950, driving a truck, and I was 14 years old. I finally got out of high school, went to University of Texas. Welcome. And studied international economics, as well as college rodeo. 
the sport of rodeo has been a very important part of my life, starting at age 14 in high school rodeo, then through college rodeo, and two or three years professional after I got out of college. When I got out of University of Texas, I didn't want to go to work for my dad. I wanted to work anywhere except for the family company. (laughs) And former employee of CRC or Crutcher Off Cummins had just formed a company to build pipeline bridges. You have two ways of crossing a pipeline, either aerial or underneath a river. He had a system where we suspended the pipeline by cable. And we had two towers, on one on each side of the river. that were Y-shaped with it. Obviously, with a Y on the ground and the other part vertical, to which we attach cables and a pipe to make an aerial crossing. On my 25th birthday, I used a 12 pound sledgehammer to drive a pin in the final connection of a pipeline that was bridge span was 1,250 feet across the Missouri River, about 30 miles upstream from South Sioux City, Nebraska, or Sioux City, Iowa. That was an interesting project. We did it in the winter. The river was frozen solid. Oh, wow. So we were going back and forth across the river with side booms and other equipment necessary to weld a pipe together and connect it to the cable. Then we pulled the two towers vertical. On the high side of the river, the tower was 60 feet tall. On the low side of the river, the tower was 315 feet. It's still in operation today, (laughs) and I believe it's still one of the longest single clear span bridges ever built. Wow. Following that enterprise, I went to work for Panama Incorporated, a pipeline contractor in Houston the principal owner of which was a man named Panama Shiflet, and he was so well-known by his nickname, they called the company Panama Incorporated. (laughs) My dad hired people in 1940 to go to Panama to build a pipeline, and he hired a bunch of hands for the contractor. Crutcher All Cummings, or CRC, was a pipeline equipment and supply company. 
and Panama was one of the people he hired to go down there. He came back telling so many stories about his <laughs> time in Panama. They called him, nicknamed him Panama. I worked for Panama about three years. And I always told my dad I would go to work for the company if he needed me bad enough, but I'd rather not. He called me and he said two of his top people had resigned and were forming a competitive company. He said, I need you. I need you now. I said, how soon? Well, backing up just a moment, my brother-in-law and I were in Mexico in the process of leasing a ranch in northern Coahuila, west of Eagle Pass, Texas, about 150 miles. And we were on the ranch, and I look up, and here comes a taxi cab, and all four fenders were flapping in the breeze. But it would run <laughs> with a note from the company pilot. I am at the baseball field at Muskie's Coahuila. Your dad sent me to pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea for what the crisis was. Right. Anyway. He picked us up. He landed an airplane on the baseball field because there was no airport there. He picked me and my brother-in-law up. We came to Houston, landed at the company airport, which was at the corner of Derry Ashford and I-10 on the north side of the run of the I-10 were now at the headquarters of Conoco and I believe Shell. I'm not sure. But that used to be your dad's it company's was, airport. That was our airport. That was his airport. Yeah, it was 3,500 feet long, parallel to uh, I-10. So the majority of the landings were direct crosswind. <laughs> <laughs> That's where Top Golf is today. I got to the airport. And there was my wife and my mother and my suitcase and my passport. Uh-oh. And the same thing was was there for that pilot. We flew to New Orleans to catch a direct flight to New York. And from there, we caught Alitalia and flew to Milano, Italy. The Italians were in joint venture with the Germans for the construction of 480 miles of 12-inch products pipeline. The pipeline was in Burma. We spent oh, six weeks in Europe. British Petroleum was the owner of the product of the pipeline. The two contractors were Saipam from Italy and Monisman from Germany in joint venture. We 
were back and forth in a triangle. London, Milano, Dusseldorf, London. We made that trip by airplane, which was a four-engine turboprop Viscounts in those days. About once a week for six weeks. (laughs) Make a long story short, we got back, and the Italians were really tough buyers, and they were negotiating back and forth, and we had one competitor was all there. There was only two people in this business at that time. Your dad's company and the Italians? My dad's company and a company in Tulsa, Oklahoma was the only competition. So anyway, by then the Italians had opened an office in New York. And they had a hard-nosed guy, their buyer. And he'd say, now, will you cut 2%? Yes, we'll cut 2%. He'd go to our competition. Well, you cut two and a half percent. (laughs) And this went on about three or four times. And finally, I said, Dad, there's only one way to do this. And that's just tell them either give us the order or we're going to call our competition. He said, go ahead. So I told him I was (laughs) 26 years old. (laughs) I told this Italian guy, I said, look, this is our last offer. You either take it and give us the order right now, or I'm calling my competition and let you deal with one. <laughs> so he stuttered a minute and gave us the order on the phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he knew exactly what would happen. It so was, did you. And it, it was, I think it was the biggest order that CRC had ever gotten in their history up to that time. Wow. You were 26 years old. Yeah. (laughs) I felt good. I bet dad was happy. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. (laughs) Welcome to the company, son. (laughs) Yeah. Well, after that, uh, my dad died when I was 28. And he had contracted cancer and knew that end was close and he'd made me president of the company before he died after he died we uh, had a very close relationship he did with a managing partner of Arthur Young Company in Houston who helped me get the financing necessary to buy our competition for a period of Two or three years, we were the only company to supply pipeline construction, specialized pipeline construction equipment in the world. Wow. Well, gradually, one guy would leave and start a company, another fellow leave and start a company. Gradually, we had three or four competitors. But during this Two or three years following my dad's death, we developed a device to automatic weld pipelines, which truly changed the total production of pipeline construction. 
in that era, the pipeline welders were in high, high demand and short, short supply. And they virtually controlled the progress of pipeline construction jobs. Right. In in North America, I'm talking about, and Canada. So they were diametrically opposed to this automatic welding machine, <laughs> to put it kind. You're going to take their job. Our first job was for coastal gas transmission. I have one question I want to ask, and that is, how long did it take the people to weld? What was the time difference per weld? Because that's where you save not only on the people, obviously there's personnel costs, but there's equipment costs. I was just wondering time-wise, was it a faster process? Well, it was like, uh, depending, of course, on diameter of the pipe, whether you're talking about 20-inch or 48-inch pipe. But it was, um, let me see. It was about four times faster. Wow. Big speaking, it's hard to make a statement to cover all of that. I understand. But just generically, that gives me a ballpark. It was a lot more efficient. It was a lot faster. Our first, well, at that point in time, we, our company was still very small. We had an equity of certified audit, an equity of a million eight hundred thousand dollars. We had invested in this development $2,100,000. Needed to pay off. (laughs) It's a big gamble. Well, we knew we could do it. I mean, there were no, we had it nailed as far as the technology is concerned. What was one of the technical hurdles on it, major technical hurdles? Major. Technical what? Hurdles on developing the the technology. Like, what was your biggest challenge? Was it lining up the pipe or was it No, the the biggest challenge was out of position welding, welding overhead, and being able to meet the X-ray standards. And once we got that done, we decided to have a demonstration at our airport that I was talking about. And we we got 3,500 feet of pipe in 40-foot joints from uh, Columbia Gas Transmission, 30-inch pipe, and laid it down that runway just like a pipeline Mm -hmm. construction project. But then the industry all heard about it, and we had an open house, and there was... Let everybody come look. Yeah, about three or four hundred people showed up. I've forgotten. It was more people than I ever thought would be there. (laughs) And we welded that 35, B85 joints, 40-foot joints. We welded it up with side boom and typical... Procedure as used in pipeline construction. We welded to 3,500 feet one day, cut it up at night, beveled it, 
and then welded it again the next day and did a two-day demonstration. <laughs> well, of course, where the welding cost was incredibly costly was in offshore labarge. And J. Ray McDermott in Brown Root had 88% or something like that of all offshore pipeline construction. They both sent representatives. A man by the name <coughs> of L. E. Minor, Ed Minor, was in charge of pipeline construction division of Brown Root. And mind you, they made more money than all the rest of the activities of Brown Root put together. I believe he had about 10 laborers. Well, he came out there and watched. What year was this? 50 something? 66, 65. Okay. 65 to 64. He came out there and watched. Three days later, I got this phone call and said, Kerry, I want to come see you. I said, well, yes, sir, I'll come see you. No, I'll be in your office more than 9 o'clock. <laughs> He's coming to see you. Yeah. Not the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> he walked in. He said, uh, I've told Mr. Brown about this development. We want this welding machine. I said, what do you mean you want it? We want to buy this welding. We want to buy the whole deal. I said, no, we can't do that. <laughs> we wound up making an exclusive offshore license. We had worldwide patents on all it. Exclusive offshore arrangement with Brown Root. And they paid us $2,250,000 original payment. Then they bought the equipment to put on the lay barges and we furnished all of the consumables and all of the manpower to technicians to run this equipment. And Ed Miner told me the first 12 months that they ran that equipment they made $138 million oh, wow. on pipeline construction. Golly. So anyway, the next job where we're to demonstrate it. Well, just, just one analysis of, of that that I kind of want to throw into the podcast, and that is it's very similar to today because you immediately recouped all of your costs to, to build this and get it patented because it was 2.1 million. Yeah. They gave you 2.5. So you were flush. Yes, sir. And then you gave them an exclusive right to use that technology. For marine construction. For only marine construction, right? But you still had it for the rest of the world. But the kicker is it's just like buying a printer these days. They'll give you a printer, but you got to buy all the cartridges from them. Exactly. That's where they make the money. You not only did you get flush with the the technology instantly worldwide, you were flush. So that's a perfect deal. But then to get lifetime, you know, consumables. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You got a bit of that money that they made, too. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> Amen. Made, that was a hell of a job. It made a lot of money. You got to remember today's value of those dollars 
you multiply those dollars by eight to compensate for inflation or deflation of the value of our dollar. Right. Anyway, the next major onshore pipeline job was in Italy for the company that was a joint venture on the Burma oil project. The name of that subsidiary of BP, I couldn't remember, Burma Oil. This job was in Italy. I believe it was a 32-inch pipe in the Po River Valley. We had about 100 kilometers, 60 miles. And it was the first major land test. We were over there with, and it came the biggest torrential rain that they'd had in 60 years. And the mud on the right-of-way was as deep as the top of the tractors, the track on them. Everything's buried. So it was, the mud was probably three foot deep. We had eight technicians and two engineers. <laughs> and the technicians had never been in the field. They were shop technicians. Right. They didn't know anything <laughs> about field work. <laughs> well, prototype equipment and first one connection, another fuse, and this and that was going in. Right. And our initial production was terrible. It barely make 20, 30 welds a day. And we were shooting at 100 welds. So I was, I believe I was in Greece doing something on another project. And when everything shut down, well, the boy that, there was a chief pilot that co-invented this thing. There's a man named Gene Sam. Gene got me on the phone. He said, you better come up here. We got lots of problems. He told me what to do. I said, well, I'll be there tomorrow. Had my wife with me. Here we go. I got up there about 8 o'clock at night. And what had been going on is these technicians, when a wire would break or they had to rewire something, they're pulling their knife out of their pocket and stripping that wire to make a connection. Well, all of the crew on this job was from Sicily. And when old boys pulled their pocket knives out, all those guys from Sicily just stopped and watched them. <laughs> I said, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Finally, the general superintendent told me, he said, look, ever, we're, we're all from Sicily, this particular group, and said in Sicily, when you pull out a pocket knife, you draw blood with it before you put it up. <laughs> yeah, there's no other reason to pull it out. <laughs> Somebody's going to get cut. I got on the phone and it, we tried to find wire strippers. Right. You know, they weren't available in Italy. So I got on the phone, called Houston. I said, Send, I want you to put somebody on an airplane with three dozen wire strippers in their suitcase 
and sent him to this job, which we did. <laughs> Took a day or two, but we got them all there. Couldn't buy them anywhere else. Got the job running. And finally, these kids, technicians were all exhausted and working 12 hours a day, six days a week, standard pipeline construction in that mud and fighting this equipment. None of them had ever been on a pipeline before. <laughs> and they slowed down. I said, guys, got them all together in the room. I said, you're faced with an impossible task, in your opinion. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, look, if you finish this job, I'm going to give you a 25% bonus for the time that you were here. I said, remember, the impossible pays better. <laughs> I remember when you told me that story the first time over coffee and breakfast tacos. Yeah. And I've, I've kept it as a motto of mine my entire career. Well, that solved the problem. <laughs> 25% motivates a lot of people. Yeah, they all went back to work. That's we right. finished the job. And from that came other projects, and the automatic welding system was launched. The birth of the system. The first job we had here in the United States was 10 miles of 30-inch for coastal uh, gas line at Bandera, Texas. And we did that job before we went to Italy, but it was just a demonstration. But from then, it, it went worldwide. And made a significant amount of money. Built major company. And you were 30 years old? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and in charge of this company? Yes, sir. Wow. And next thing we did was, with that extra cash flow, we diversified. And we purchased Frederick Air Conditioning Company in San Antonio. And it was a publicly trade. It was traded, yeah, on the American Stock Exchange. And had 20, no, had 16,000 shareholders because the company had originally formed in Tennessee and a famous musician of, of the time was a guy named Eddie Arnold. And he was chairman of the company. Well, everybody in Tennessee bought a share of stock so he could have his autograph. Right. <laughs> they sold that stock 50 cents a share when they first went on. <laughs> well, he, it evolved and wound up. Other people controlled it, and they bought Frederick. So Frederick was on 62% of it was owned by a boy that I'd gone to school with, known all my life, a boy named Walter Fondren, who played quarterback at Lamar High School and then University of Texas. And he and I had been in school together since first grade, and he wanted to sell that thing. He had tired of food in the air conditioning. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. So we made a deal and bought it. Well, then we were public. And then next thing, we got involved in the oil field service business. Could you tell me that air conditioning story you told me on the phone? <laughs> the July 4th air conditioning story. 
I told my kids that story and they looked at me and my oldest asked, do you mean those, those really, those three initials? All right. Well, (laughs) before we purchased Frederick, well, to begin with, one of their primary lines of business was walk-in coolers in nearly every meat market in South Texas and places north had Frederick for storing meat and so forth in the grocery store. Also had walk-in coolers. And they had they were the only company in Texas making that kind of stuff. So anyway, on a Friday before 4th of July weekend, 4th of July is on Monday, about 3.30 in the afternoon, we were living at, at our old home place of Barker, Cypress, and I-10. And I get this telephone call. Gary Crutcher, yes, sir. It's Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. You own Frederick, don't you? I said, yes, sir. I've got your equipment and my walk-in coolers. And it's Friday. And on Monday, I've got a 4th of July barbecue. And there's going to be 1,500 people here. These walk-in coolers have quit working. And I've got all this meat in those coolers. And I need some help. I said, Mr. President, you know, it's 4th of July week. (laughs) (laughs) Weekend. He said, Crutcher, boy, you don't understand. I need some help. (laughs) (laughs) I said, let me make, let me call the plant right quick. I called. All the service department had left except the manager. I told him what had happened. He said, well, I got a fishing trip. I said, yeah, but we're dealing with the president of the United States. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I said, get your tools and be at Stinson Airport in San Antonio, Stinson Field, in an hour and a half, and I'll pick you up personally in a bonanza, and we're going to fly to Johnson City. Well, where I lived wasn't 15 minutes to our airport, so I jumped in the car Went rolling, called a mechanic. I said, get a bonanza out. I got to go. I jumped in that bonanza hour and 20 minutes. I was at Stinson Field, loaded that mechanic. <laughs> we went, and this was in the summertime. But anyway, I got there by 7.30. I had that mechanic there. president came out and said, you carry crutcher? And I said, yes, sir. I knew you, Dad. You're a good boy. Appreciate your help. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. I fired that airplane up and I got back to Houston because I didn't want to be there in case that, that, that guy couldn't get that freezer to work. <laughs> you did your part. Oh, I love that story. I told Dan that story. He said, where'd you land the airplane? I said on Brown Route International Airport. <laughs> right. You know, he had a 5,000 foot paved runway on that. Now, 
I have been a lifelong Republican, and I never voted for a Democrat, including Lyndon Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Reason being, he and my dad were friends, social. My dad was non-political, but anyway, they knew each other, the same era, same age, same part of the country. Anyway, based on unpublished history that I know about Lyndon Johnson, I didn't vote for him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, you've told me some good stories. One of my favorites was about you and A.J. Foyt. Oh, yeah, well. But (laughs) anyway, we uh, going back to all fields of service business, we bought Mallard Well Service, which was an inland barge-mounted workover company in Lafayette. And I believe it had eight barges, jack-up inland barges for well workover. Those barges cost, when we started adding them, show you the difference in a dollar a day and then, $2.2 million built a brand new barge. Today, they're $25 million. Mm. Same, identical. That's what's happened to the dollar. Anyway, then we added to that a wireline company called Eastern Wireline. And another company, I forgot the name of. You had a snubbing company too, didn't you? What? A hydraulic workover company, snubbing company? That was after I sold. Oh, okay. That was after I sold to CRC. When I sold to CRC, I had a five-year non-compete in the pipeline industry. But I could go back in the oil field service without any problem, which is what we did. But I'm trying to, I can't remember there's another company that we Bought that was in a wireline business that we put in with Eastern Jennings Well Service from a man named Charlie Holtz, Land Workover. I think we had 21 or two workover rigs. He worked East Texas and Louisiana. Then Bought a company. He used to have an ad out of Fort Worth. He said, Eddie, somebody, the the big workover company in Fort Worth. I'm sorry, I got a senior moment. I can't remember the name (laughs) of the company we bought. Stuff you remember anyway. Yeah, don't worry about about that. 80 rigs. So that put us at 110 or 15. And that was the lowest profit of all of the company. By nature, I mean, and by reputation in the industry. Western Wireline was the name of the company in Fort Worth. They had operations as far west as Denver and Casper. By then, public ownership was beginning to be very onerous if an individual owned over 10% of a company. 
SEC, Security and Exchange Commission, it got down to where, you know, over 10%, you had to publish your personal financial statement and list all of your assets. They wanted to know all of your business. Yeah. Just and, because you own 10% of And that really kind of irritated me. It's none of their business. About that time, we hired a CEO. The board directors didn't think I was qualified to be a CEO. Of CRC? Yeah. At 30 years we, old? Yeah. And we called, the name of our company was, after we bought Frederick, we changed CRC to Crutcher Resources Corporation. And that's the way it was listed. On the exchange. On the American stock. And anyway, we had an opportunity to sell it to a group of investors, American European investors, whose chairman was the recently retired chairman of Exxon. Mm. And I can't remember his name, I'm sorry. But anyway, then I was... 77 at the beginning of 77 and the Alaska pipeline we had equipment on all 10 spreads of the Alaska pipeline the automatic welding and everything and it was winding up they finished it at the end of 77 I believe it was 78 was it when the price of oil went down and anyway they and bought what they felt like was an incredible problem. But the oil industry went down, I believe it was 78, wasn't it? Well, the, the big revenue from the pipeline division had stopped because the Alaska job was over. I mean, when I say stopped, it went down about 60%. Right, that's a big job. But all of the oil field service companies went straight down. They wound up putting the company in bankruptcy and sold the oil field service companies off. After they bought it from you? Yeah. Four years. But the Alaska pipeline, I mean, what an engineering achievement. And it was had to have been centered on the automatic welding technology. There's no way they could have done it that fast. Well, you know, this is no criticism at all. But you've seen men that would that were worldwide and famous running a given company. Then they got involved in something much, much smaller. Everybody said, well he's gonna expand it. And it didn't work. Mm. And they had a couple of executives from two or three other big companies. But None of them understood pipeline construction. And the man from Exxon really didn't understand the service business. He had 4,000 people under him, took care of it. It's human nature. A lot of people cannot make that transition. Right. But then I bought the wireline company, and this, I mean, bought the snubbing company. And the, with it was a rental of a small tubing. Doing workovers and things like that? Yeah. We bought that 
thing for $3.6 million in 24 months. I sold it to a New York Stock Exchange company for $11 million. (laughs) (laughs) And you say return on investment. (laughs) These people were in the, it was American nuclear or something. They didn't know anything at all about the oil business. But by then, service business had turned around. Everything was on a boom. And they wanted to show their shareholders that they were Keeping up with the times and getting involved in the oil field service. <laughs> Again, they put guys in charge of it that didn't know which end of a rig went in the air. <laughs> How it, long did that company last? I, I, I lost track of it. But, <laughs> you know, you just don't make that kind of money very often. No. Right. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> but the reason I sold that then. The two principles that we bought it from, I found out and started another company as a machine shop making downhole too, with two months before we bought the company from them. Mm. So either I was going to have to move to What's the town across the river from New Orleans? Oh, Homa? I was either going to have to move to Homa, Louisiana, or sell the company. And this gay hoocher comes along from New York wanting to buy an oil field service company, <laughs> so I let him have it. You can have the headache, too. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of fun and games. Oh, I bet. Well, look, we've been at it about 50 minutes. You want to take a break? I mean, I'm here as long as you're willing to tell stories. I'm not going to take any more of your time than, you know, you're willing to. But well, I know we, you've got a lot in you. We can talk about Australia if you want to. I love Australia. I've worked there. Where? North, south, east, and west. Everything from the Bass Strait, the western Australia, went out of Darwin. Well, I went to Queensland, but we were just flying through there. I, I, I used to have an office in Perth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know where Broome is? Yes, I know. I've been to Broome. Well, let's come back in a minute. I'll tell you. Absolutely. I'll tell you some stories about the West Kimberleys. Ooh, excellent. All right, we're going to take a little break. Be right back. All right, I started the recording back. Don't have to start talking until you're ready. Uh, Here's some Australia stories coming up. After we sold Crutcher Resource, I got involved in the ranching business. In West Australia, we wound up with six Australian stations, is what they call a ranch. And the total acreage was 50-year leasehold from the government. You cannot buy the property. It's government property. You get a 50-year lease. 20 years before it expires, they renegotiate for another 50 years. But anyway, the total size of all six stations was 4,280,000 acres. It's just staggering. That's a big ranch. That's a big ranch. That's six separate properties all together. How much bigger than the King Ranch would that be? 
don't know, five, six times. Wow. A King Ranch is 85,000 acres. But anyway, the cattle inventory, which was on the property when we bought them, all added together was 62,000 head of cattle, branded cattle, 62,000 head of branded cattle. And I believe 25% of a packing house at the town of Broome. All these properties were in West Australia, referred to as the Kimberley region of Australia. We had an irrigated farming operation that was planned for 55,000 acres, no, excuse me, 48,000 acres of irrigation. And the crop we were going to grow is grain sorghum, just like South Texas. It was located on a river, the Fitzroy River, which flows into the ocean at Derby, or they call it Darby, West Australia. First thing we had to do was build a levee, protection, flood protection levee, which we built to the 200-year flood stage, and 11 miles long, and about, oh, I don't know how many million yards of dirt we had to move, but we had about eight caterpillar scrapers and dozers, motor graders, and they're pretty good set of construction equipment. We got that built, and we had our first crop. We were This was virgin land, not any clearing. It was all just a big prairie, flat prairie. In our first year, we had 6,500 acres of grain sorghum. And the amazing thing is it was producing 8,000 pounds of grain sorghum per acre because of the climate and the soil and the water. Well, the ranches were doing good. Packing house was a problem due to the union, which we finally sold to get out of. We only had 30%, I believe. But along comes a flood on the Fitzroy River. And it completely wiped out half of that levee and put 10 foot of water over our farmland. We went to government and said, we built it to a 200 year flood. Typical Australian answer. Said, well, mate, we had a 400-year flood. <laughs> <laughs> they have an incredible sense of humor. Yes, they do. As far as the shipment of meat was concerned from a packing plant, we sold the first frozen beef to Japan from the packing house. Been on the far northwest corner of Australia, as you know. In my youth and over-enthusiasm, 
we're really 20 years too early with the project. All of the supplies and fuel had to be trucked from Perth, 1,200 miles to get a, to us. Right, it's a long ways. 1,200 miles by road to Perth. If we wanted to sell our cattle live to the packing house in Perth, you had that freight. And that was about $40, $50 a head. The Asian market today is the biggest market that Australia's got. We eventually sold the last property in 19... 19- 82. I was involved there. Let's see. I bought the first property in 67. So I ended there about 15 years. It was not successful because of logistics. Everything you used had to come in 1,200 miles. Everything that you sold had to go back the same way. Right. Mm. Plus, we had that engineer say, well, mate, you had a 400-year flood. I made a lot of great friends. Australians are great people. Today, those properties that we sold for 3 or $4 million a piece of the station are now selling for $20, $30 million. And the price of beef in Australia has quadrupled. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a friend in Perth that works offshore, and I'm trying to get her to do a podcast for Australia. Yeah. I know she'll hear this and, and get a big smile. Well, the name of the company was Australian Land and Cattle Company, or Alco, which I'm sure she can find pretty easy (laughs) if she does any checking. One of the most humorous aspects of the whole 15 years was that Bunker Hunt got interested in those property, and he was buying property. King Ranch was already over there. But they were expanding, mm. trying to buy property. And here comes me. <laughs> <laughs> well, those landowners were just having a field day. Here they had three bunches of Texans over trying to buy the property all at the same time. And boy, they were typical Australian. They know how to trade. Prices went straight up. <laughs> so I came back and I said, we got to figure some way out of this. So I'd gone to school one year in Kingsville and was very well acquainted with the Clayburg family. And I called Bob Clayburg. I said, Mr. Bob, if I get Bunker Hunt to come to the ranch, would you fix lunch? He said, I'd love to. I've never met Bunker Hunt. Oh, wow. I called Bunker Hunt. I knew him socially, never did any business with him. Got his secretary on the phone. I said, I want to invite Bunker to come to lunch with me and Bob Clayburg at Kingsville. Do you think he'd come? She said, just a minute. And Bunker gets on the phone. Q, 
okay, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Such a character. I said, won't you take enough time to come have lunch with Bob Clayburg and me to talk about Australia? Tell me when I'll be there. So we set a date. And I, at that point in time, was flying twin engine Cessna 310 five-place airplane. I go down there and land at the Kingsville County Airport. I'm getting out of my airplane, and here comes Bunker Hunt in his Lockheed Jet Star <laughs> four-engine. That's right. <laughs> well, Bob sent the ranch limousine pickup Bunker Hunt. I got in a pickup with a range foreman. <laughs> but those two guys, believe it or not, had never met wow. each other. Oh, wow. It's hard to believe. I finally, about 5 o'clock in the evening, I said, gentlemen, I got to go. By then, both of them were famous for their martinis. Well into their cups. And it wound up the day... I talked to Bunker a day or two later. I said, well, appreciate you coming down. Well, good. Said, you should have stayed a little while longer. Said, I wound up buying five head of racehorses. <laughs> <laughs> For all these wonderful podcast listeners, I just want to fill everybody in Bunker Hunt. So I just finished a book that Dan Morrison put me on to in his podcast, and you might've heard it's called The Big Rich. And it's the history of Texas oil and four of the largest Texas oil men families, the four main families, right? Yes, well, Sid Richardson, Sid Richardson, Clint Murkison had started the Cowboys. Richardson, his nephews ended up with the Bass family. Bass, that's right. And then you had Cullen, Houston, Houston. University of Houston, all the hospitals. But Bunker that, Hunt was yeah. that family. And yes. he plays a, a very big part in that book and did some absolutely crazy things. When I just finished that book, like driving over here and okay. to hear you sitting down with King Ranch, Bunker Hunt, over six million acres of Australia farmland, it's just staggering. <laughs> Well, I've enjoyed it. No, thank you very much. I appreciate every minute of it. We'll definitely do it again if you're interested. I know you've got some other stories in you. I'll be happy to. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Dan, appreciate it. Thanks, Terry. Nomad Mobile Productions is a broadcasting and media production company that produces podcasts and provides a mobile podcast studio complete with audio and video recording equipment. We also offer post-production processing, editing, marketing, and publication for podcasts. Our mobile production studio will come to you. Visit our webpage, nomadmobileproductions.com, or our Facebook, 